So if, if you're new, you might not know this, but we are here temporarily at the Y. That makes sense, right? Uh, so we're here temporarily at the Y, but we actually have a location that we're developing across the street. We always call it the church house. We're at 110 Mountain Line here. Church house is 111 Mountain Line across the street. Um, and when that property opened up for us, we were pretty excited about getting it and developing it into a permanent location. Uh, but there were some hurdles that we had to overcome. For one, it's a residence. It's not a house. The space is good, but it's not perfect yet. Uh, second problem is there's no parking lot. And so we said, how are we going to handle this parking lot? Because I don't know if you know this, but parking lots are like crazy expensive. Crazy expensive. Uh, and so, once again, God's providence has that house right next door to a massive parking lot. And we thought, well, maybe we can rent that parking lot and use that parking lot for our church parking. And, and it actually belongs to the YMCA. The YMCA is wonderful. They said, yes, you can rent it. You can use that space. And so we thought everything was good. We pursued the property. We got it. And then the city said, uh, oh, wait, the zoning doesn't allow that parking lot to be rented. He said, no worries. We'll just have to take it to the, the zoning board and, and the different commissioners will have to debate it out and see if we can change the, change the contract. Y'all remember this? Some of y'all remember us going through this. Um, and, and once again, the city's been great. The, the, the whole board was great. But there was one dissenting vote that did not want us allowed to rent it. And, and this, this guy said, well, what happens when we rent you that parking lot and people from the church are hanging out in the parking lot, like getting into fights and yelling at each other? <laughs> thankfully, thankfully, everyone else on the board was like, this is a church. That's not going to happen. But looking back on that time, you know why that one board member, that one commissioner probably thought that? Because it happens. It happens all the time. Where people who are called out by God's grace, who are saying and proclaiming their love for Jesus, get into these knock-down, drag-out fights. And, I, and I'm glad they thought he was being unreasonable because at the same time, I thought, Dude's got a point. Like some churches, that's going to happen. We pray for God it never happens here, but we have to ask the question, why does that happen so often? Why is it that people who are called out by God's grace to follow after Jesus, to pursue holiness, to die to self, and to live for his kingdom, how is it that so often we run into conflict with one another? I have, I've got four kids, you know them, they're, they're all over the place. Um, but one of my hard things as a parent is that my kids stop, start to fight. And they start bickering and getting into it over, over like things that I'm like, it's Legos, guys, come on. Um, but there's only certain pieces, they have the right pieces. So that happens, and I just want to say, stop fighting. Like, let's not do this. Let's have... A peaceful home. And, and I usually say that with my voice raised and my face red, uh, destroying the peace myself. But, but there's this idea that people get into fights and they get into arguments with one another. So, our passage today that we're going to read, the first 10 verses in the James chapter 4, actually answers some questions about fighting, about arguing, about 
quarreling. It answers the question, why we fight? It answers the question of what does this do to our relationships with one another? It answers the question, what does this do to our relationship with God? And then, thankfully, James doesn't leave us broken and with no hope, but he tells us what we need to do. So as we read this passage and discuss it, those are the four questions that, that the text is going to answer. Let's go ahead and stand and respect to God's word as we read James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and you wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Verse 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whoever wants to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy to God. Or do you think it is without reason that Scripture says, The Spirit He made to dwell in us envies intensely, but He gives greater grace. Therefore, He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Christ Community Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, you may be seated. So stop fighting. Our text does answer a few different things about arguing and fighting. Thankfully, right off the bat, he explains why we actually get into fights, why we get into arguments. He tells us right there in verse 1. What is the source of wars and fights among you? He says, don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? Don't, isn't, isn't that the thing that you desire and you cannot have? And he uses these two words and says that they are the source of our passion. He says, what, what the source of our argument and fighting? He says, the source of our argument and fighting are passions and desires. This word passion in, in the original language has, has, a, has almost a direct correlation in English and it's the same word where we get the word hedonism. A hedonist is one who seeks pleasure and lives their life seeking pleasure. And so James is clearly saying that the, the reason we get in fights and the reasons we get in arguments is because we desire pleasure. We desire things in this life. I want you to think about the last time you got in an argument with somebody. It might be a friend, it might be a co-worker, it might be a spouse, it might be a child, it might be a parent. But the last time you got in an argument, would it be possible to trace that argument back to its original source? And I know you might say, well, they did this thing, they made me upset, and so that's the source. But that's not what James is telling us to do here. What James is calling us to do is that whenever we get in a fight, whenever we get in an argument, what we should do is not 
try to cast blame. But rather, he is telling us that we need to look inward. We need to look inward to find out what was our passion, what was our desire that led us into this argument. One of my favorite quotes, when I think I've read in any book, uh, I've used this quote countless times, you've probably, probably heard me say it before. It's in a book called um, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands by Paul David Tripp, where Paul David Tripp says this. He said, people and situations don't determine your behavior. People and situations don't determine your behavior. But rather, they provide the opportunity for your behavior to reveal your heart. Alright, I want to say that again, because I think this is so crucial. People and situations don't determine your behavior. But they provide the opportunity for your behavior to reveal your heart. Whenever you get in a fight, whenever you get in an argument... What we are supposed to do is not say, I wouldn't have done that thing, I wouldn't have said that thing, but they did this. They said this to me. This was their action towards me, and that's why I responded the way I did. That is wholly unbiblical. What the Bible would say is the reason you responded the way you did is because you had this passion, this desire, this this desire for pleasure somehow within you, and and it was offended by the other person. And the reason you struck out at them with your words is not because of what they did, because of what is true in your heart. So what I would encourage you to do is whenever you get in an argument, whenever you get in a fight, if it happens, don't waste it. Don't waste that argument, but use that opportunity to them when you're by yourself to do a little bit of introspection to consider what was it that that led me to this behavior that led me into this argument he gives us a few ideas of what this might be and we get ideas throughout scripture of oftentimes those desires so 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 what are some of those desires that lead us to get into arguments that lead us to get into fights On, on some level I think probably one of the the most base ones is this idea of materialism. That we want something. We literally actually want something that's physical, something that's out there, something that we can attain. And whenever we lose it, or whenever it's taken out of our grasp, that loss of that thing stirs up anger within us. And it leads us to attack other people. So not only is it just this idea of materialism, but sometimes this, this falls into the idea of security. That sometimes the reason we like things, and sometimes the reason why we like a cushion in our bank account, or sometimes the reasons why we, we like to have stuff around us, uh, is because of security. And the things that we have actually make us comfortable. But whenever that comfort is threatened, we, we strike out because our pleasure, our desire to be secure is taken away. And often the other common type of, of desire or pleasure is, is pleasure itself. This idea, especially in our society today, we, we always hear that we need some me time. I just need to get alone. I need to, I need to be by myself and Rightly so, sometimes that needs to happen. 
but what do we do when we're by ourselves? Oftentimes when we do get a moment to be alone by ourselves, we don't use, use that time well, but we almost squander it, whether that be through social media, whether that be through, 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 through games, or through just absolute pleasuring yourself. And these desires, whenever they are threatened by other people, and other people will take them away from us, it causes us to strike out in anger, to lose our temper, and to lead us into that fight. Some of us deal with, with passions and pleasure of material things and security. Some of us with pleasure and time to play and time alone to escape. Think for, for me and think for many other people, this last aspect of pride is a pretty big deal. When do I get into fights? When do I get into arguments? It's, it's, when, my, it's when my pride is pricked and somebody questions my work ethic or someone questions my actions and there is something within me that, that raises its head and gets angry that wants to strike out against the other person. Why? Because what brings me pleasure, what my passion is, what my desire is, is to be respected. And so when that is lost, it oftentimes leads me into an argument. It leads me into a fight. So James tells us, why do we fight? Why do we argue? We do it because of our pleasures, because of our passions, because of our desires. And we are called as God's people to look deeply within us, to find out what desire, what passion within me actually leads me to fight and battle other people. This text not only explains why we fight, but it also talks some, in verse 2, about what this does to our relationships. It says, You desire and you do not have. You murder and you covet and you cannot obtain. You fight and you wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. So what does, what does our, our passions and our desires lead us to do? What does it do to our relationships? It tells us that our passions and our desires actually will destroy our relationships with other people. It destroys our relationship with other people. If you look here, it talks about how when we don't get what we want, it actually leads to, to coveting. It leads to, to murdering. It leads to fighting. It leads to waging war. James uses these, these very intense words. And to some extent, we can say that he's being figurative. Like we, we figuratively fight. We figuratively wage, wage war. We figuratively murder. But even in his day, he's writing the church, right? But even in his day, he's oftentimes saying that, that this is sometimes leading to actual violence. That frustrated desire can lead to violence. That, that commissioner who was afraid that there would be violence in the parking lot. Why was he saying that there would be violence in the parking lot? It's because it has happened and does happen within the church, within the body of Christ. Frustrated desires lead to violence. But if, if you're like me, you might say, oh, I don't get violent. I don't even get loud. Uh, I, I just get really passive aggressive. Uh, there's, a, there's a great book called The Peacemaker. And in The Peacemaker, he has this, this great illustration of how we respond uh, to, to discord, of how we respond when people get angry at us. And I, and I, hope, I hope you can see it there in the back. 
But on one side, where it gets to the blue side, that's kind of the, the flight. That you, you, you get in an argument, you get in a conflict, and what you do is you eventually run away. Whereas the red side is, is the attack responses. That you get in an argument, you have passions clashing, and what you do, instead of flight, you, you run to fight. So you got to fight, you got to flight. And then the, the author of this book says there's all these peacemaking responses kind of in between that we actually need to be doing. What I want you to look at this diagram on the screen is I want you to ask yourself, where do you fall? Do you fall on, on the fight side? That when somebody threatens your pride, they threaten your security, they threaten your, your pleasures or your desires, does the anger rise up within you and come out in harsh words and flexed muscles and an angry brow? Or when your passions and your desires are threatened, does it lead you to the flight side where you, you deny the fact that you're actually having an issue at all? I'm good with them. There's nothing going on. We're perfectly okay. Or just flight, where you have an isolation. And the relationship that you once had with somebody is completely broken off because you avoided them completely. Because they were a threat to your passions. They were a threat to your desires. And you ran away. What Scripture is calling us to do is to not let these responses get in the way of our relationships with other people. Because we do find examples throughout Scripture of, of, of both of these. I want you to look at the extreme, extreme responses on either side. The extreme response on the fight is actual murder. I want you to think of, of Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel, the, the first sons born into this world, the sons of, of Adam and Eve, Cain was upset at God, upset at Abel because his worship wasn't accepted. And, and he, or we are told that he had anger in his heart. And, and the Lord actually came to him and said, Cain, if you do what is right, things will be well. As it is, sin is crouching at the door and its desires for you. And we are told that Cain went ahead and attacked his brother Abel and killed him. So instead of, instead of negotiating it out, instead of mediation, instead of reconciliation, instead of just overlooking something, what does he do? His threatened passion, his threatened desires led him to physically attack and kill his brother. What about the other side? I think the other side of examples in Scripture of the escape responses, we have the example of Jacob and Esau. Do you remember Jacob and Esau? These twin brothers, Esau was the older, so Esau should have gotten the inheritance. Esau should have gotten his father's blessing. But his younger brother, Jacob, born a few seconds later, um, actually stole it from him. And so what you have are these warring passions and these warring desires. And what is Jacob's response? Jacob's response is that he, he runs. Instead of reconciling, instead of confessing, instead of making it right, instead of, instead of facing up to the responsibility of what, the, of what he had done, what does he do? He, he runs away. The most extreme example of the escape response I think we can find in Scripture is the example of Judas himself. Judas who betrayed our Lord 
what did he end up doing with his life? He ended up running so far away from the issues that he was dealing with that he ended up committing suicide. What causes fights? What causes quarrels among you? James tells us that it's the passions and the desires of our heart. And whenever we fall into those passions and those desires, we find that it breaks down our relationships. What should our relationships look like? Look like it tells us in James chapter three, verses verses beginning in verse sixteen. So look look on the page opposite of where we are in James chapter four. He's talking about true wisdom. He said, For where there is envy and selfish ambition. So where are the where there are these desires, where there are these passions, to so where there is selfish and envy, he says there is disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom from above is first of all pure, then peace loving, then gentle and compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without pretense. And the fruit of righteousness is sown and peace by those who cultivate peace. What does it look like not to be bound by your desires? Not to be bound by your own individual passions? He says it looks like this. Where we can be pure. Where we can be a peace-loving people. Where we can be gentle and full of mercy. Unwavering without pretense. Whenever we are living and walking in Christ and our confidence is in Christ, we can have that type of wisdom that is from above. And when we have that type of wisdom, we can have peace with one another. Disordered desires not only affect our relationship with one another, but our disordered desires also affect our relationship with God. Look at the end of verse 2. It says, you desire and you do not have. You, uh, end, I'm sorry, the end of verse 2. Uh, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives. So you may spend it on your own pleasures. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whoever wants to be a friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think that it is without reason that Scripture says, the Spirit He made to dwell in us envies intensely? So whenever we are filled with our passions, when we are filled with our desires, not only does it separate us from being in, in union and agreement with other people, but our passions and our desires separate us and isolate us from God. He said the reason you don't have the things in your life that you might think you need is because you don't ask. You do not have because you do not ask. We pursue these things. We try to get them through our own strength, through our own power. But then James says, well, what if I do ask for them? Because some people do. I ask for the things I want all the time. I'm always asking for the things I desire. What if I don't get it then? He says, well, the reason you don't have is because you don't ask. And when you do ask, you still don't get it because you ask with the wrong motives. Our desires and our passions end up making us treat God like a vending machine. Where we just go to Him to get the things that we need. Christian Smith, uh, a philosopher, kind of social scientist, uh, came up with what he considers to be the religion of today. 
And he called the religion of today moralistic, therapeutic deism. So it's a moralistic, therapeutic deism. And this moralistic, therapeutic deism, he says, has these five different tenets. And one of them is like, God created all things, and he wants us to be happy. This is, this is the religion of the day. God created all of us, and he wants us to be happy. And not only does God want us to be happy, but he wants all people to be good and right and fair, as taught in the Bible and other religions as well. And he says, God and this moralistic therapeutic deism is pretty absent. God is absent from the picture of people's lives up until the point when they need something. When they want something. And it's that point that they go to God in prayer in order to, to get what they want. But here's the thing. This moralistic therapeutic deism is not Christianity. It's not a biblical faith. It's not describing life in the world and the worldview the way that the Bible describes it. Because we are merely using God to try to get what we want in order to fulfill our desires. We're isolating ourselves from this very God we say we worship. How do we know if our hearts have the right motives? I'm guessing we want a few things in this room. I know I want a few things. How do I know when I approach God with a request, how do I know if I'm asking with the right motives or, or impure motives? This is hard because Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says that the heart is more deceitful than anything. It's incurable. Who can understand it? Because we, we, what we can do is we say, no, no, my, my motives are pure because I'm wanting to use this thing for ministry. And so it has to be good, right? That, that's my desire. But our heart can be deceitful above all things. So how do we know if we're asking with, with the right desire? Hey, there's a few things that we can do. The first thing we need to do is to take the Word of God seriously. If you have a desire, and you have a, if you have a passion, and it is directly against what the Word of God says, it is not God's will for you. The Word of God stands in direct contradiction of your desire and your passion. What we are called to do then is realize that our passion and our desire is wrong. And we need to submit to the Word of God. So the first step of trying to figure out if our passion or if our desire is wrong, we're asking things with wrong motives is what does the Word of God say? I think not only do we read the Word of God, but we pray for clarity as we're reading it. And I think the other thing that we need to do is we need to seek wisdom from other people. We need to seek wisdom. This is the importance of being a part of the church community and being in a covenant membership is the people you go to are the people who you are in church with, in community with, in covenant with. And you say, this is my desire. This is what I want to do. And I'm trying to determine if this is actually a good thing or not. And hopefully the community of saints that surround you will not say, well, what do you want? What will make you happy? Because that must be right. But the community around you will then also go to the Word of God. And they will compare your desires and your passions off of what the Word says. 
But you know what I see time and time again? Time and time again, because the heart is deceitful above all else, we are able to explain away large sections of the Bible and able to do and say what we are doing is fine. And then we're able to just to dismiss every other person, saying, well, they must be interpreting the Bible wrong. In order for us to pursue the desires of our heart, the reason oftentimes we don't have is because we don't ask, and the reason when we ask and we don't receive is because we're asking with the wrong motives. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, seek the Word of God and seek Christian community to find out if you are asking with the right motives. Because look at what he says. Verse 4. I, I think this is one of the strongest rebukes I've read in the Bible. This might be one of the strongest rebukes that I've read in the New Testament. And James just like opens up with both barrels as he's talking about not fighting. This is what he says, right? He says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whoever wants to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. What does James do? He is calling people in the church, he's calling them adulterers. He's saying you had this covenant with God. You were united with God. You were one with God. But your passions and your desires for things other than God has caused you to be an adulterer. Has caused you to left to leave your 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 covenant with your God. It's pretty strong words, especially when you consider the fact that he is writing to people who are in the church. James oftentimes mirrors Jesus's words in the Sermon on the Mountain and the wisdom that Jesus speaks. And James was was the brother, the half brother of Jesus. Jesus said this in the book of Matthew, chapter six, verse twenty-four: No one can serve two masters, since he will either hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. What was Jesus saying? What is James saying? He is saying that you cannot serve both the desires and the pleasures you have in your heart and also love and pursue God. That those two things are not compatible with each other. You either have to love God and run hard after Him or run hard after the pleasures and desires your old self thinks that you need. He says, friendship with the world makes you an enemy with God. If we consider ourselves the bride of Christ, are we being faithful to Him? Are we are we honoring the covenant that we have with Jesus? Or are we flirting with the world? And the desires, the pleasures that the world can offer. He says in verse 5 that the spirit he made to live in us through envies intensely. It's a kind of hard passage to understand. Is he talking about the Spirit of God? That the Spirit of God he calls to live within us envies intensely? Or is it just talking about being a human? He's talking about just being a human. That the way that God made us, he made our spirits to envy and long after things intensely. That's why... We get so addicted after the things of this world because we're made to long for things 
We are made to desire things. But in creation, God made you, designed you to long after and to desire Him. And when other things, other passions, other desires become the thing that you long for, you're actually making yourself an enemy to God. And thankfully, James does not leave us here thinking, well, I'm just a horrible person and I have no hope in life. Because that's when I was reading this and I was studying it, that's kind of how I was feeling. Like, woe is me, I'm undone, what do I do? But thankfully, James does not leave us there, but he tells us how we are supposed to respond to these desires. And what he does is he gives us this beautiful picture of repentance. We see this in verses 5 or 6 through, six through 10. Our spirit envies intensely. We long for things. We long for pleasure. We long for passion. We long for the desires of this world. And what are the next words that come out of his mouth? But he gives greater grace. God's grace is greater than the spirit that's in you that desires after the things of this world. But God gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Verse 7, Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. What James does is he gives us a picture of repentance. What does biblical repentance look like? Biblical repentance looks like submitting to God. And James in his, in his proverb style of writing begins to tell us what that looks like. He says one of the ways that we repent and what repentance looks like is that we resist the devil. This word resist that he uses is actually a militaristic term where you are actively engaging the enemy. So if you have these passions, if you have these desires and you're wanting to repent of them because they're not biblical and they're keeping you from Jesus and they're destroying your relationships, James is saying, what are the hard, concrete tactics you are using in order to fight those desires in your life? Because so often, every aspect of our life, we're just so passive. And we think, yes, I feel bad about those things and I want to stop them. What are we doing to actually resist, to actually put up a resistance against those desires, against those passions that we have? He says, says fight them. Resist the devil and he will flee. And then in the same breath, he says, and draw near to God and he will draw near to you. There's an old band called Phillips Craig and Dean. Anyone over 30 remember them? Uh, Phillips Craig and Dean, an old CCM Christian band. They have this song that's based off the prodigal son. And it's called When God Ran. If you're unfamiliar with the story of the prodigal son, it's a son who dishonors his father and says, Dad, even though you're not dead, uh, let's pretend like you were. Why don't you give me your inheritance? And I'm going to live life my own way. The father complies, gives his son the inheritance as if he had died, and the son runs away and he spends his inheritance on all of his passions, on all of his desires, on all of his lusts. And when all of his money is squandered and he is in the literal pig pen 
eating the slop of these animals. He says, even my servants look better. My father's servants look better than I do. And he said, I'm going to go home and I'm going to beg. I'm going to beg before my father for forgiveness. And maybe he will make me like one of his servants. And we are told that this prodigal son begins the journey home. And that while he is on the road home, that his father, this elderly man, begins to run to him and embraces him and puts a new, fresh, clean robe on him and puts a ring on his finger and makes a feast. That while the son was drawing near to the father, the father drew near to the son. Phillips Craig and Dean, their, their song says this, The day I left home, I knew I'd broken his heart, and I wondered then if things could ever be the same. One night, I remembered his love for me, and down that dusty road, ahead I could see. It was the only time, it's the only time I ever saw him run. He says, and then he ran to me, he took me in his arms, held my head to his chest, and cried, my sons, come home again. He lifted my face, wiped the tears from my eyes with forgiveness in his voice. He said, son, don't you know that I still love you? If you do not know this song, you've got to look it up on Spotify today, guys, because I'm not doing it justice here. He caught me by surprise. He brought me to my knees when God ran. I saw him run. What makes this gloomy passage so glorious is the fact that when we are in repentance and we draw near to God, that God runs like the Father in this parable, wraps us in his arms, and says, don't you know that I still love you? Is that not, is that not like reason to say, I don't want this sin anymore? I don't want this filth anymore. I want the pure love of my Father. And it drives us to Him. He draws near to us. We resist our sin. We draw near to God. Jesus said, if you seek me, you will find me. And then James continues on, and he says that we need to cleanse our hands and purify our hearts. He says, he says, he calls us double-minded people. Basically, means two-souled. That we are that we are living two different lives. That we are living a life of the world. We're pursuing our pleasures and our desires, and then we have this other world where we're trying to live for God. And He is saying, "You cannot live that way, but rather you have to live your life wholeheartedly for Jesus." Could that be true of you? That she said, I am going to let my life revolve around my Lord. Or is my life going to revolve around my career? Or is my life going to revolve around my family? Or is my life going to revolve around my security? He is saying, if we do that, we are living double-souled, double-minded lives. He said, we can't do that, but we rather we have to purify and cleanse ourselves to be these priests in this world for God. And then the last aspect of repentance that he gives us is this attitude of mourning that we are broken. He said, be miserable, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Guys, true repentance looks like brokenness. Where you are actually broken over how you are living your life and broken over your sin. And true repentance causes us then to look to God and say, see, this is like the most oppressing 
version of the world. I thought, I thought Christians were supposed to be joyful. Here's telling me that I need to be miserable, that I need to weep, that I need to mourn, that I need to put laughing aside and do all this. Isn't Christianity supposed to be joyful? The answer is yes. Psalm 30, verse 5 says, His anger lasts only a moment, but His favor a lifetime. That weeping may stay overnight, but there is joy in the morning. Before you can get to the joy of a Christian life, you have to go through the morning over the brokenness of your sin. True repentance is followed and involves a brokenness over our sin. And then he gives us the hopeful words of verse 10. Therefore, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Philippians chapter 2, there's this beautiful hymn about, about Jesus. And it says he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. That he brought himself low. But at the end of the hymn, it talks about how how God raised him up and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that in order to be lifted up, one has to go low. My prayer for you this morning, Christ Community Church, is that you will be able to identify those passions and those desires in your life so that you can begin this process of repenting against them. Because they're destroying your relationship with one another. They're destroying your relationship with God. And ultimately, if we don't leave them, they will even take our life. But God gives greater grace. Let us stay and pray.